Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome along to the Rocky Road Rewind. I'm Kevin Byrne and I'm joined today by Pascal Collins. Absolutely delighted to have you, Pascal. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's good to be back. I think it's my Great second time now, is it? Uh, third time, Pascal. Third time. Third, third time's charm, yeah. Um, you joined us today to, to discuss your brother Steve's first world title win when he won the WBO world middleweight title against Chris Pyatt at Sheffield's Ponds Forge in May 1994. Great memory for your family, I'm sure. Yeah, well, as you mentioned earlier, a lot of people don't even realise that he was middleweight champ of the world. But uh, to us, it was his first world title win. And, you know, I am forced hand because I lived with Steve as a kid in America when he was fighting Neil Brockton with the Petronellis. And then I also spent a lot of time in, in, in camps with him in Matchroom in London uh, when he was in Romford. I also spent time in Belfast with him. So I, I've seen his journey firsthand as his kid brother. Uh, his personal life and his personal issues of what he went through and then that one moment when he won the world title when he became world champion it was an emotional time for all our family you know because uh, it, you know it was it, it, it was at that time I think it was Steve's kind of I think it was he threw everything into him because I, I think he saw it as his last opportunity he had failed uh, no one say failed but he had been he'd lost two previous world t- uh, title fights so I think to him, this was his, his, his kind of last opportunity to become a world champion. And it was emotional, but it was, it was probably one of my best memories. Because mm. Irish world middleweight champions are a rare breed. The very first world middleweight champion was uh, non-parel Jack Dempsey from County Kildare originally. And it was 100 years before Steve won the WBO belt. And 20 years later, Andy Lee won the WBO belt uh, in Las Vegas on a famous night. But there have been none. Yeah. There's none in between. There's none since. There's been a, f- a good few people attempted, and a lot of people have tried, but very few have got to the summit. Yes, um, you know it, it, it's a great feat for somebody to even challenge for a world title because you know you got to be you got to be in an elite in your way and at your class to actually do that. Um, and and for Luke here, like you know, for Luke to fight for a world title at, at the time. He he knows himself. Like it probably wasn't the right time, you know. Maybe a little bit more experience for him. But when he got the opportunity, you don't turn down world championship fights. And the one thing he did have, he did have a bit of power. And as I say, and and by the way, he fought a really good fighter. 
in uh, Bubu Andre because I knew Bubu Andre when he was coming up as an amateur because when I was boxing out of Petronelli's all them years back he lived like probably an hour away in in in, in, uh, in, in Rhode Island right, and, um, and he, was, he was a regular visit to the Petronelli's as an amateur and he, he stood out he, this kid walked into the gym sell pot slick and he beat up men as a 16 year old he was beating up men in the gym and he, he always stood out to me and um, so and, and he's not going to know the proper recognition he deserves as a world champion. You know, he 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 was junior middleweight champ of the world, and he for two years he done nothing, and that was basically because his contract let it run out. People forget that, and then now he's world champion again, and you know people are knocking him for not fighting all these names. But he was due to fight Billy Joe Saunders, and never happens. You know, but the point I'm getting to is where Luke Keeler stepped up into that position. And uh, I knew Bubu Andrade, and I knew it was going to be a tough fight for Luke, but he showed a lot of bottle on the night. Mm. You know, he can come up and get experience and come back. And it would be nice to see another world champ uh, back in their shores. Yeah. Now, Pasco, from having you on the show before and knowing you over the years, I know you've got a good memory. How well do you remember May 1994? I remember it well, very well. Okay, well, I'll bring you through. I'll bring you through some some of the sports headlines from that month. I made a first. Yes. Uh, Ayrton Senna is killed in a crash in San Marino, if yes. you recall. Arsenal with the, Euro- the European Cup winners' cup against Parma, Copenhagen. Man United. Yeah, I don't remember that. <laughs> <laughs> Man United. I don't remember even after today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Are you not a football fan? I, I was a football fan for a long time. I was a Man United fan, and then I just got sick of all these, you know, all this. Rules and Molly Coddle and fellas falling out for no reason. So I just thought, I'm not watching this again, you know. Fair enough. Well, it was, 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 was a hard man, Man United team won the FA Cup final against Chelsea 4 0, if you recall. Yes. That, was, that was a hard team, you know. Keane, Cantona, yes. Mark Hughes, tough men, yes. Steve Bruce. And uh, AC yes. Milan beat, beat Barcelona 4 0 in the Champions League final. Um, yes. in, in world news, the Channel Tunnel linking England and France officially opened. And uh, Nelson Mandela, former boxer, was sworn in as South Africa's first black president. Um, in movie news, Pulp Fiction premiered at the Cannes Film Festival. Uh, the number one single in Ireland was Riverdance, believe it or not. And uh, oh. the number one movie in Ireland was Ace Ventura, Pet Detective. So that, there's your... And, we, and Ireland... Pretty, the song, pretty, pretty movie, yeah. yeah. Movie. And Ireland, we're getting ready to go to uh, the World Cup 94. Yes. In the States. Yeah. Did you go to that? I was in the States. I was in the States when that was taking part. And as a matter of fact... Um, a friend of mine had a bar in South Boston and I remember when they came back from Florida they stopped off in Boston um, and literally they, I got a call from them and said come on down and meet the players and we get down and uh, I met Jason McIntyre and Phil Bob and all these guys so it, it was you know that, that was my memory of it like it, we didn't really have a apart from the fourth game uh, beating Italy we didn't really have a great World Cup then so but uh, yeah, I was out there at the time and it was, I remember a beautiful summer. That was my fourth year to actually be in Boston. Yeah. I went to Tumble. I turned professional that year, December that year. So, okay. You know, I could remember 94. Yeah. And um, at the time, your brother Steve was 27 and 3 going into the Chris Pye fight. He was signed yes. with Matchroom. Yes. Spearheaded by Barry Hearn at the time. He had three losses to his name. Uh, Mike McCallum, Reggie Johnson, world title fights. Uh, went to yes. distance. And uh, Callum Bay for the European. Yes. Uh, where was he in his career at the time? He, he spent time in America, well, won titles, fought the yeah. best. At, uh, well, the, but the thing is, you know, when you mention his three losses, you, you come from, uh, you know, on paper, it was three losses. But if you're around the game, 
And I've been around the game and I've been around him. I was, I was a lot younger than him at the time. But I mean, I was at rings, I was at the fight for Callum Bay in Italy. And, you know, that, in my eyes, you know, I could be biased because he's my brother. I actually thought he won that fight. And I think at one stage, maybe twice, Callum Bay was on the canvas. You know, both classes slipped straight away. But one of them, you know, I thought was a, a legitimate knockdown. Maybe not. But, you know, at the time, you know, the old... Uh, joke was that you need to knock somebody out and literally to get a draw and that proved it then so in my eyes I actually thought he'd be Calambe I thought he was the busier fighter you know when he fought Reggie Johnson for the middleweight belt in, in uh, New Jersey back in 92 um, going into the later rounds in that fight you know it was either, the fight was going either way and Steve had points deducted in one of the rounds 10 or 11 by the referee and there was no official warning it was just to duck points and he ended up losing the fight in a split decision. So the Reggie Johnson fight and the Callum Bay fight, he, he could, in a different country, he would have won them fights in my eyes. Mike McCallum, when he fought Mike McCallum, like he was he, he was in Ireland for Christmas time. He was a, a 15 fight novice pro. Um, and while he was in Ireland on Christmas, it was his first Christmas home from the States, he got a call from Brian Eastwood and said, you want to fight for a world title February 3rd in, in or I didn't say where, just February 3rd. So literally, he was asked, does he want to fight for a world title in five weeks' time? Boy, he was at home enjoying himself. And absolutely, he says, yeah, definitely. So a 15 fight novice pro with such short nose to go out and, and, and give Mike McCallum such a tough fight. McCallum did say it was, it was his toughest fight to date. And he pushed McCallum. Mm. Um, and another thing a lot of people don't realise is and I actually have the x-rays Steve went into that fight with broken ribs um, which he sustained in training camp in, in America and uh, i seen the x-rays I still have the x-rays so to go in a fight like that against the body snatcher the best body punch in the game with yeah. broken ribs to push him so hard so I knew Steve although he didn't get the decisions at the time he was good enough to be a world champion now some of us hope people are good enough and some of us wish for people to be good enough I knew he was good enough, and a lot of people knew he was good enough, and, and he was probably one of the most avoided middleweights at the time. He, he, you know, he called out a lot of fighters. So, uh, I always knew that if he kept going, he he would be a world champion. But it was the opportunities for running out. Yeah, absolutely. And um, Barry Hearn maneuvers a fight with uh, with Chris Pius. Yes, who who who's forty two wins, three losses. He's been a light middleweight. He's moving up. He's he's got the WBO belt, and Steve looks absolutely massive at middleweight as well. I think yes. he gets the benefit of the twenty four hour weigh in, which is fairly new at the time. Yes, he goes in much the bigger man. Yes, um, yeah. Well, Chris Boy, if you stand beside Chris Boy, he's he's a short. He's, like you say, bigger. Steve is taller, but Chris Boy is broader. Yeah. If you look at Chris Boy, he's a bigger chest, bigger legs. You know, bigger shoulders. So, apart from not being the height, Stephen is, he's actually a big man. And Poyet did say at the time when he moved to middleweight that he struggled at making junior middleweight. So, he Poyet was probably the natural middleweight where Steve eventually moved up to super middleweight. So, um, you know, but, but look at Poyet. He just beaten Sumbu Calambe for the belt. Yeah. And, and Calambe had beaten Mike McCallum, who Steve lost it. Calambe had also beaten Steve. Callum Bay had beaten Aram Barkley. He had beaten Robbie Sims. You know, he'd been a lot of really good fighter. So, you know, it was a good win for Chris Poyet and it was a dangerous fight too for Steve. Um, at, the, at the beginning of the commentary, Reg Goodridge and uh, Jim Water in the chair for ITV, and they comment that Poyet is a slight favourite. Um, what was your what was your thoughts going into the fight? Had you done your had you known Poyet? Uh, he'd been in matchroom with uh, Steve Collins, your brother Steve. Oh, absolutely. As well. 
Absolutely. Well, the, the, the thing is, I was boxing amateur at the time, so I spent a lot of time over in Romford, Essex, with my brother Steve. You stayed at the house right next to the gym. <clears throat> so we'd be training there. And if I can remember, I think it was the fight previous to Steve and Chris fighting each other. They both fought, they, they both fought the same card um, in Brentwood. And it was literally, uh, it was Chris's last defence before he fought Steve. He fought a guy called Mark Cameron, South African. And Steve fought Paul Wesley. At the time, Steve fought Paul Wesley on the same card. And Paul Wesley was a great fighter. He, he, he to me, is one of the most wasted talents in, in boxing because Paul Wesley fought everybody. He fought all the world champs. He fought Sumba Calambe for Santa Espana. He fought my brother Steve. He fought all the top fighters. So he was a potential banana skin prior to Steve fighting with, uh, Chris Poyer. So they, we were around the same circuits at that time. They were both training at the same gym. They were both around the same gym doing their weigh-ins. Um, and because of this fact that Steve and Chris knew they were going to fight each there was a little bit of tension and a little bit of animosity that was caused by other people talking. So I always remember at the weigh-in when Chris fought, defended his world title, and Steve fought Paul Wesley at the weigh-in. Steve approached Chris and said, listen, Chris, you know, whatever happens when we fight happens, but, you know, I have no animosity towards you. He said I, I do my fight in the ring. So if people are talking and they shook hands and it was very respectful. But when they left that moment after shaking hands, you knew that they were going to fight each other because of his attention and between both of them. So, you know, it, it was, it was, there was a lot of, a lot of, there was a lot more pressure on Steve, I think, than there was a Chris Poyer because Chris had won the world title. It was his tour defense where Steve had fought twice before and this was his big his, his last chance so I think there was more pressure on Steve and, and we knew this you could see this yeah and how did that how did that kind of show itself on Steve before the fight um, well what Steve does is what my brother Steve always did was he'll always take uh, you know he'll always take a problem and create a solution so the pressure was there for him you know that if I lose this opportunity if I lose this this could be my last opportunity so what he would do is he would just go and and put him wherever work he had to put in. He'd invest in himself. He, you know, Steve always invested his, his, his purses. Whatever he was getting for his, his, his title fights coming up to being a world champion, he would take the purse, the exact purse he'd get in the night, and he'd have that spent before he'd even fight because he invested in himself. He wanted to be world champion, and he was never going to look back and say, well, if I had it in this. So what he would do is, if you got 20 grand for the undercard fight on the night, he would take that money from that room and say, right, you get the best sparring partners in, you get the right uh, coaches in, his foods and his diet. And he would invest in himself. So what he did for the Poya fight was, he invested in himself. He had a very good game plan. At the time, he had a very good trainer in Freddie King uh-huh. from that room. Freddie was a very good trainer. Um, they devised the game plan. And he did everything, you know, to the way it should be as far as sparring and training. And, uh, you know, it was, as you would say, it was tour time of charm. Yeah, so we'll go over the fight and just have a look at some of the rounds and some of the action as it takes place. But it's no it's no major spoiler to reveal that Steve Collins beats Chris Pyatt by TKO in the fifth round. Referee Paul Thomas steps in to save um, the English fighter from taking any more punishment. Following a big knockdown from Steve Collins at the beginning of the, or near the start of the fifth round. Big right hand. But... Um, yeah, so that that's that's no bit that's no major spoiler. But uh, you go you go into the first round and it's a decent ra- it's a decent round for Pyatt, and uh, the commentators uh, make make a couple, couple of comments that Steve looks a bit more up for this. They can see that there's a bit more drive behind him. They say he's been a bit lackluster in a couple of recent fights back in the UK. 
Yeah, well, I mean, whatever you do in life, you get up and go to work every day. If you're not motivated by what you do, it's very hard to get up for it. So, you know, when, when you're training for fights, uh, keep busy fights. And if you look at some of the keep busy fights, you push TV and it was kind of short nose against, you know, 50-50 opponents. So when you fought for two world titles, USBA champion, American titles, uh, European titles, and, and this is where a lot of a lot of great fighters fall down in their careers. You know, they're fighting for world titles, they're motivated, and they take dangerous fights and they don't prepare properly because the motivation is just not there. But Steve knew that he, it was like he had all his ducks in a row for this fight. He'd done everything right, and everything went well. Is 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 is, you know, he was peaking at the right time. Everything for this fight went really well. And he believed in his in his heart of hearts that he was going to be world champion on the night, and he knew this. He yeah. believed this in himself, and he could see it, and he could see it even the build up to the fight too, and and you could see in Poyet his demeanor also. You could see in Poyet's demeanor even at the weigh in, he didn't look uh, right for this fight. Poyet didn't, so mentally didn't look right. Yeah. So you know, well, Steve, Steve could see this. Poyet can see this. You can see this in your opponents looking them straight in the eye. Steve knew on the night he was going to be world champion. Yeah. And of course, though, you, you find out a lot when the two fighters come together in the, in the ring and they go through the first three minutes of action. You can tell a lot from that. Often you can tell a lot from the first 30 seconds. What did you think after the first round? Uh, Guttridge and Jim Watt had a, a Steve Collins round, the ITV unofficial scorecard. But watching it back there myself, I probably suspect Pyatt did enough. Steve missed a few jabs. I thought Pyatt maybe won the round. What are you thinking at the end of the first? Um, yeah, well, what I realized Chris Poy is a big puncher. I think he's like, like 23, 24 knockouts in his career. So when when you win against a, a puncher, the first thing you have to do, and especially over 12 rounds, is stay away, feel your opponent out. And, you know, and this this is coming back to when Steve started out in Broxton with Goody Petronelli. I mean, probably one of the most, in, in my eyes, probably one of the greatest trainers around of, of the last 50 years. But Goody Petronelli always said to me, you know, as a professional fighter starting out in the first round, and I'm sure the same, my brother Steve, go out in this fight, go out in this first round and feed your opponent out. If you win the round, you win the rounds. If you don't, you don't. But just go out and feed your opponent out. So you could see Steve was, you know, although he wanted to win the rounds, he was going to have to feed his opponent out. It wasn't a necessity to win the first round because he'd only take a, big, a chance for a big puncher. So after the first round, they thought, you know, that was okay. But he hasn't made a clip to any big shots. And that's what you have to be careful of, getting caught cold. No matter how good a chin you have, if you get caught cold, it's, it's a total different scenario. So, in my eyes, it was a very good first round. Yeah, happy enough. And you can hear yeah. at the end of the round, uh, there's a couple of dubs in the crowd shouting Steve-O, Steve-O at the end of it. That was probably but, us. That was probably <laughs> my brothers. Yeah. No doubt, because it, 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 like, uh, you know, Sheffield Lesser, not too far away from each other. Was Steve, was Steve very much the away fighter on the night, or was there enough of you to make, it a, make a lot of noise? I know, Steve, Steve was the away fighter. Um, it's probably a Bromley. Is he, is he from Birmingham? Is he from up that area? I thought Leicester. Oh, Leicester, yeah. So he's in that kind of area, region of Birmingham, Leicester. So he wasn't too far away. No, Poya had the big fan base on the night. It was, there was a group of us went over. There was probably a, there was probably 50 to 100 people from Ireland went over and there's a lot yeah. of people in the area. And by the way, there's a big Irish community in Sheffield. And I always remember a good friend of my brother Steve's at the time he used to spar with was Paul Silky Jones. And Paul boxed with the Ingles at the time. And, and actually, I think in that fight, Paul carried the tricolor to the ring, didn't he? Yeah, I, I think he did, actually. Yeah, he did, yeah, it. yeah, he did. He came um, into the um, Thin Lizzy whiskey. Thin Lizzy whiskey. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Paul Wesley actually carried the flag at the ring on the... No- oh, no, sorry, not Paul Wesley. Paul Silky Jones. Silky, yeah. 
carried the flag. So he brought a lot of support from the Sheffield area, the GM. So, you know, although although they support their own, Steve had a bit of support on the night. He did, did I have, see, did I see Eamon, Eamon Lochran in the ring as well? He did, yes. Eamon was part of the state at the time, but they were all in Sheffield together, like, so, yeah, yeah he was there that night too. Um, Yas was, um, was Pi at a Brummie. No, he, was li- he was actually living, I think, at the time with the Birmingham City owner, Karen Brady. He was in her That's flat. That's right. She had a newspaper too, the Daily Sport, wasn't it? She was the editor of the Daily Sport, was she? No? Was she as well? I think she was, yeah. Not that I've ever read the paper, but I've heard. A columnist with uh, with the sun, with the sun now, so uh. yeah. No, she. I think she was she was she was the editor of the Daily Sport at the time, because you know we all know what the Daily Sport was, but there was always all the picture of him in it, you know. Right. Okay. Yeah. Steve was probably public enemy number one in that one. Absolutely. All right. Absolutely. Um. So the, the boys come out for round two, and um, Steve starts to put a bit of dominance on Chris Pius. It looks like. The, uh, the commentators discussed the, the size, you know, the 24 way and how it's being key. And you can you can see that Steve has already made the adjustment to whatever yes. Pyatt has thrown at him in the first round. And he's starting to land jabs. And you can see a left hook to the body really start to land as well. Yes. And you yes. can really see him as well throw that backhand right. And he misses a few. I think he puts himself on the ground. With yeah, one he it's so much force into the right hand that when it yes. misses, when Poyet moves backwards, yes. the right hand keeps on downwards and Steve ends up on the deck. Yeah, well, Steve, Steve had previously worked in uh, New York with Floyd Patterson. Um, Floyd Patterson trained Steve for a while, uh, Floyd Patterson Sr. And uh, he was a small man, but he could throw a right hand. He was a cracking right hand he had. Um, a bit like Rocky Marsh Channel. He said, when you let that right hand go, you let the whole body flow with it, you know, from the from the feet and the leg up. Um, let it flow. And if you miss, you fall on the ground. But if you land, you land. So this had come from spending time at Patterson's Gym in New York. I always remember Steve coming back from there and he, you know, he was throwing them right hands, which he passed on to me too, that knowledge. You know, being around someone who's done it all, I've, I've picked up a lot myself too. But that's what happened there. You can see that. If, so I knew in that fight, when it lands, it's going to do damage. And, and you know, when you when you put so much ferocity into a punch like that, especially against someone who's actually coming towards you, you know, who's walking into the shot, it's like, it's like a double whammy. You know, they're using their force, you're using your force, and it's like a car crash. So, um, but, it, you know, to, to hit on what you just said, but Steve coming out for the second round and he looked a little bit more up for it for the second round, he's throwing lots more shots in him. What happens is sometimes, me as a trainer, I've learned this over the years, um, and, 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 and being a fighter too, with the likes of Goody Pesciani and Freddie Roach, when you go back to your corner, the first thing I ask my fighters is, how's his power? Especially against a puncher. Um, and, you know, Steve, I'm sure Steve said, well, He's got power, but he's not as big a puncher as I thought he was. Then he can say, okay, you can take a few more risks. Or maybe Steve felt his power and probably goes, no, nah, he doesn't hit that hard. So you can take a few more risks. Mm. And and that's probably the motivation behind him going out and being a little bit more, um, not say take risks, but a little bit more kind of aggressive in the second round. Um, Packy, what's your role in the camp at the time? Like, obviously, you're closely connected yeah. Uh, what 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 are you doing? What are you doing? Like you're just obviously watching the fight and roaring them on. But what was your role behind the scenes at the time? Were you just doing water? Or what what was it? Well, what happened was when 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 I was out when I was out in Romford with Steve, right? So there was a house that that, that Barry Hen had owned. Now it was a small house, just called the House of Pain because there was no heat or anything in it, and the cooker wasn't great. And I always remember it was right across the road from a pizza hut. So literally all the fighters was there. Time probably Eamon Lachlan and myself, Alan Levine. 
from Liverpool, SD. There was always fires coming and going, but you get a room in this house and you go across to the uh, Pizza Hut and you get as much, as much pasta as you can eat and salads. That kind of stuff. So that's where we lived. But uh, I say, I was Steve's younger brother, so I was always over there with him and I'd share the room with him. You know, he too too bad. So when he'd go running, I'd go running with the group. So it was kind of like company for him. Yeah. And then we go to do some laundry and I'd be carrying his bags of laundry for him. Um, so it, it was basically as his brother, he'd bring me along. But I was training, as I say, in the matchroom gym too for my own career that I mentioned, so I'm professional. So as far as a role and in and, and that fight, preparing for that fight, I didn't have a role. It was just, yeah. you know, keeping him company. It, it, as I say, you know, his uh, trainer at the time, Freddie King, was a very good trainer and his son Jason was around and he had uh, people do weights for him at the matchroom gym. Everything was in that kind of area and the, yeah. the house was literally, was literally across the road. So, uh, you know. But obviously, living, like, living hand in glove, are you throwing every punch at him or are you kind of taking an analytical view and just kind of sitting back and watching? Well, what's your demeanor like at ringside going into that third round? Good round for Pyatt. Um, I probably scored it to him. A couple of combinations. He lands a, he lands an uppercut with a right hand on Steve. Lands a couple of good shots. Probably yes. doesn't dominate the round, but just in terms yes. of whatever they really yes. like. The eye-catching shots, as uh, Jim Watt might call them, or, or someone yes. else. Well, after being in camp, I could see what Steve's game plan was. I could see what Freddie King. I always remember Freddie used to throw that jab at Steve and be pulling that right hand, loading up on that right hand. And then eventually, when a fighter comes around, let it go. And I could see that. And I could see Steve putting guys down in training camp. He had been sparring Eamon Lochran, who had similar style to Chris Pyatt. And Eamon was as tough as all boots and fit as a fiddle. So, you know, he was doing that sparring with Eamon and then bigger men too. But I could see... With other foreigners, Steve was landing that right hand and he was actually starting to hurt them. So we could see that there was a game plan in place. Chris Boy was just doing the same thing, coming out, you know, coming forward, throwing hooks, trying to land on Steve. As you've seen at the end of Steve's career, we can sit back now and Steve had probably one of the best chains in boxing, world boxing, I want to say Irish and British boxing, I'd say world boxing one of the best chains. So I don't think that hook was going to was gonna land on Steve. And, and, and the fact that he was a bigger man, you know, as you pointed out. Um, so there was never really that fear after say a round or two you could kind of see you know everything started to you know fall into place yeah especially in that fourth round it's uh, back to the way the script was going in the second round yes. so I, I think at this stage I have uh, Steve winning the the uh, even rounds and Pyatt winning yes. the other but in yes. the fourth when he, he starts to push him back again and yes. lay down yes. the dominance which takes yes. on the fifth round yes well you could hear Freddie King in the corner and he, he was talking to Steve and he was telling Steve now to start pushing you know, start trying to start, start pushing him back a little bit more. You know, take the center ring and start throwing them shots as he comes in. And you can see, and you know, I, I actually, I actually, I won't say I was shocked when the fight, when, when Steve actually dropped him. But in a way, I thought Pyatt would take them shots better. I actually did think that Pyatt would take them shots better, especially winning the belt against Sunwood Callanday, who was also a decent puncher too. So I, I thought, well, cracking shot, cracking right hand. And, and you could see, you know, some observers say it was premature. It wasn't. You could see Pyatt's legs were gone in that fight. And when he went on the ropes, and Steve, and Steve was hitting hard. So, you know, it was it was a fantastic uh, stoppage. Yeah, well, it was a brilliant right hand to put Pyatt yeah. down. Yeah. Uh, it was almost difficult to see watching. Now, we were watching last night on YouTube. Uh, I'm watching with my dad. And, like, he's kind of like, because we, we watched it at the time in 1994, yes. you know, on, on yes. ITV. That's where all the big fights landed back yes. then, wasn't it? And yeah, good old were, days. Yeah, great days. And before Sky Sports kind of came in and took Eubank and then pushed yes. it all out as well. But yes. ITV was the place to be. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And it, this fight was there. But we were watching it last night on, uh, on YouTube, and you can the, the right hand that lands uh, from Steve Collins to knock down Chris Pyre for the first time comes so yes. quick. Yes. And really puts them down, re- puts yes. them down hard with a delayed reaction as well. So those ones yes. really shake the boots. Of course. Um, yeah, he puts puts them in the corner, lays on a bit of pressure, uh, knocks. I think three, at least three, full flush left hooks yes. to the ribs as well. Yes. And I, I'm not ringside at the time, obviously, but I'm yes. sure if you are, you can hear the wind being taken out. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the t- you know what, what people, especially people watching something on TV, you got to take into account that the referee is standing right in front of this. Mm. Um, you know, so does the referee let it come on? What you can see from this fight was as the rounds went on, and especially round four and five, Steve was starting to land big yeah. on Chris Boyer, and he was he was hurting, he was breaking him down. You could see it. Um, so it was the right decision. You know, I'm not saying it because it's my brother, but, you, but we were sitting in the ring, so we could see that Chris Boyer was 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 gone. He was actually gone. Now instinctively, he was moving. You know, he was moving his head. He was, he, he was starting to throw back, but uh, but he was hurt. He was very hurt, and there's a chance that it could have been seriously hurt. So, yeah. Well, there's joyous scenes at the end. Uh, the Collins family okay. kind of give, give Steve an arms chair, and when Steve sits down to be interviewed by Gary Newborn, he inter- He doesn't want to talk about the fight until he says one important thing. He dedicates the win to your father. Yes, my dad. Is that something you discussed beforehand? Did you know? No, no, no. We we know nothing nothing about that. Um, it, it, it's, it's something that's that's been there with Steve all his life. Like, you know, he obviously, it's probably been his driving force. Do you understand? Maybe it was his driving force. Steve's only 16, my dad died, or 15. So at the time, he was a boxer with uh, Phoenix, with Tony Gabba, like myself. I was I was very young at the time. And then uh, Steve went to St. Davis. My Uncle Terry, my Uncle Terry took over the role as my father because he was a, another fighter. Not to tell you, box Reggie Cray, and he actually his, his claim fame was beating Reggie Cray in a fight. So, um, but he was a, a tough boxing man too. He took over the role of, of our father figure, and he brought Steve to uh, Saint Xavier's down to Johnny McCormick. And um, so, from that point, 
I think that was Steve's driving force that he wanted to be world champion. And, you know, maybe he used the, the, the fact that my dad had died when he was out jogging in his own in his 40s. He was a fighter too, oh. um, as his motivation. So, and, and, and the thing about it was, for us all that night, it was, uh, I'd say it was very emotional. Like, oh my God, we're all crying in the restaurant now because it was dedicated to my father. And if he had a been there, he would have been the proudest man in the world. But my Uncle Terry was there. And he, as I say, I, I was like seven or eight and my father died. So my Uncle Terry was like a father figure to us. But he was there. And it was we were happy for him because he he was a boxing man and he was always around. He was always around when I fought. He was always around my brother's fought. He was always dropping up to the house and talking about boxing. All his kids were girls. He had no sons. So he was happy to be around us too. Um, so, you know, I think I think in life and I, I think in boxing, I think everyone needs something, some motivation, no matter how dark things get or how bad things get, that one thing will pull you through. And I, I believe that my father was the one thing that got my brother to be a world champion, yeah. the motivation. Were, were your dad and, and your uncle close? Were they... Oh, my God. Michael Terry and my dad were best friends. They both worked for Guinnesses. Um, they were truck drivers. They deliver the Guinness. But they were also partners because you have one to drive the truck and one to offload the Guinness. So ah, they, were actually, they were actually partners each other whole life. So Guinness had a boxing team and they boxed together. And their friend was Jack O'Rourke. My uncle Jack O'Rourke was probably one of the most, he, he probably one of the most successful amateurs. If you look into his history in Irish boxing, Irish senior heavyweight champ, middleweight champ, like heavyweight champ, they were friends. That's how my mother met me. That's how my mother met my father. So there was a whole boxing fraternity through all them. It was a very close fraternity. Um, so Teddy and my dad, as I say, we always associate, my, my dad had four, four brothers, but we always associate Teddy as being like the closest uncle because he was always around the boxing scene. He loved the boxing scene. And unfortunately, Terry, you know, he died, he, he, he got hit by a car actually. Um, he was the last living relative of my father's side of the family. And he got hit by a car one Sunday. He was reading the paper. He stepped down the roads and a, a car came along and killed him. And that was kind of the end of that era, that boxing era. What, so, what year was that, Pascal? Um, I was in America at the time, so I reckon it was around 2003, 2004. Okay. So he uh, got to, at least he got to experience some of the, some of Steve's great years as world champion. And great nights and great fights. Absolutely. Terry was there. Terry was there when he fought McCallum. He was there when he fought Reggie Johnson. He was there when he fought Callum. But Terry was there for all the fights. As I say, he was like our father. He was yeah. like our father figure. Um, he was a great man. Great singer. He'd always, you know, I always remember going back to the dressing room when Steve beat McCallum or beat uh, Chris Poya and he broke into We Are the Champions, you know, the whole song. We were, that was the one thing stood out, singing that, singing that song, you know. And actually, one, one funny story I'd like to tell you about the, the trip. You know, you talked about what you remember from 94, May 94. I always remember the trip to Sheffield. So, there's probably 40, 50 people, maybe 100 people going out. Uh, Walsh's bar in Stony Battle with Steve's uh, fan club at the time, you know, and they'd all buy their tickets and go out, we're all flying. Well, my uncle Roddy O'Rourke, my mother's brother, a uh, big boxing fan, he decided he wanted to drive over, just go over, you know, take the trip from Hollyhead to Chef and enjoy the journey. So at the time, we had flights booked, but I said, no, I'm going to go by car and enjoy this. So there was my uncle Jack O'Rourke, my uncle Roddy O'Rourke, myself, my cousin Roddy O'Rourke. Uh, this is one more car. It was four or five of us in the car, anyway, driving over. But at the time, I don't know if you remember this, there was Japanese imports coming into Ireland. The cars, 
Yeah, Toyota. Yeah, Toyota. Real nineteen eighty four. The ones the remember the wing mirrors at the front of the car on the bonnet. The big wing mirrors in the bonnet of the car. Anyway, the point that I'm making is, so if you break a speed limit in these cars, there was like a ding, 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 ding. Well, I remember it. Yeah, my, Do you remember my, that? my yeah. best mate's lad used to sell them, and I, I remember them well. Yeah. So, they, they they call them a name that's a bit politically incorrect these days. You couldn't call them that name now, but yes, yes, yeah. So you can text <laughs> me that later if you want to. But anyway, so I have to remember the time I agree yet to drive them over. And I think the time the drive was probably five, six hours from Hollyhead to Sheffield. Um if you if you broke the limit. Basically went over the limit. But yeah. I think in Japan at the time the limit was fifty miles an hour, forty five miles an hour. So I remember going and driving and my uncle went over the limit. This one here. Ding ding ding. So literally, he couldn't drive the limit. It was actually one of the longest drives I've ever come across in my life. But that's one thing that always stood out to me. But it was also great because going, going, getting there was a pain in the ass. But coming home, we were we were still together in the car and we were enjoying the fact that we just witnessed my brother Steve become a world champion. So we were chatting, we were planning. We got to the boat. My, actually, my brother Mike, as, as a matter of fact, a lot of people actually got the boat back. Decided not to fly back. They all got the boat back, traveled down to Hollywood. I remember getting on the boat and uh, the, guy, the barman was a friend of my Uncle Jackson. He was putting points on for all my family. And, and then we ended up going back to Walsh's Bar. It was it was a fantastic time. It was it was great memories. And then Guinness, at the time, my brother Steve had walked there, sent up a truckload of uh, cans, bottles. I mean, literally, there was probably thousands and thousands of cans in my mother's extension we were building at the time. So it went on for three days at 12 Animal Terrace at my mother's home. A party went on and it got to the stage at the end. We were literally giving people trays of cans to take home because we were sick at that stage. Who wants to know, yeah. So, so that was the good memories I had from that time also. Because there was a family party, I think, after, afterwards that night in Sheffield. And I know that Matron put on one for uh, Steve the following night in Romford. But did you get to that one as well or...? No, we were back in Dublin the next day. No, we just we just wanted to go home. As I say, we did a three day party in in twelve on the my family home, and uh, it was it was unbelievable. You know, it was three days of my life that I'll never forget. It was fantastic. Yeah, sounds like a good one. And um, right. what impact did the win have back home? Do you remember, like, uh, because as a kid at the time, I remember, I remember the fight. But I remember being far more taken with the Eubank fight, I think, maybe just because of the fuss cool. and the celebrity that Eubank had and the, the just the size of his personality. And the, he was a he was a big name in Ireland, just as he was in England. What impact do you recall having in, in Ireland? What, did it have enough of one? Because this is the first <laughs> middleweight title an Irishman has held for 100 years. Well, I tell you, at, at the time, it was, it, was, it was a decent impact. It was good impact because, as you stated, it was on UTV. So people did get to see the fight. Mm. It was terrestrial television. A lot of people seeing the fight. So, you know, it was nowhere near beating Chris Eubank. Nowhere near the same impact. But it was it was an impact where, you know, there's people knocking at the door. And um, I remember I remember one guy. You know, it, I, I sit and I laugh sometimes. But there was one guy knocked at my mother's door. I remember Hanlon's pub uh, just up the road from South our local. We're putting on a free knife for my family and they're all up there having a drink and free bar and whatever. I remember I was at home, my, my mother's house, and this guy knocked at the door and Ulrich or Ulrich or something was his name. He was Dutch and he told me that he had written a song for my brother Steve uh, called Boomerang. 
boom, boom, boomerangs the song, right? Okay. these noise. So I thought, oh, this is great, you know. So he's standing in my mother's garden with the old-fashioned tape recorder and there's a song I always remember that was boom, 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 bam, 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 Steve Collins is the man. He's playing in my mother's garden. And I'm trying to keep it straight. I said, that's fantastic. I said, but you know what you need to do? I said, see that pub up there? He said, he goes, yeah, you need to go up there. That's where they all are. And anyway, I, I was just literally trying to get rid of him. My mother's dog, she looked like a right lunatic, you know. But he went up and seemingly they let him sing a song in the pub three or four times. People are joining in, so you know, it was it was it was great memories, but not as big as, as Eubank, no, that's not class, big. yeah. They wrote songs about Andy Lee as well at the time, um, yeah. When he hits you with the right bases, hook, yeah. <laughs> yeah. When he hits you with the right hook, you're on a holiday, you didn't book, so uh, Pretty yeah. Nice. Was that as good as Steve? Was that one of the best performances of Steve's career? Was that him at his peak? Because he boxed every which way, uh, yes. showed a little bit of everything, showed a lot of power. He kind of changed his style afterwards, didn't he, to take on Eubank and Ben. He was, well, p- perhaps more so for the second uh, Eubank fight, but he was far more marauding and yes. uh, come forward and really just bullying and, and bashing people. Whereas this one, you could still see a bit of the kind of the amateur credentials and the, the movement around the ring. A bit of the well, well what, you, what you have to take into account is also, you know, it's been stated a number of times of how big a middleweight he was. Mm. So the thing about Steve at the time as a middleweight, making weight was a struggle. And I, I could see that, how much of a struggle it was. Like, it was a real struggle for him because he was so big. And even looking at him now, I, I just can't figure out how he made middleweight at the time. 160 pounds, 11 stone six. Um, so he had to conserve a lot of energy in fights because he would he, he'd lose the energy a lot quicker, you know, in, in, in a tough fight if he decided to go forward and trade with these guys. So, you know, he moved around a lot. He'd box, he conserved energy, you know, in pockets of fight, he'd stand and he'd trade, but then he'd go off and, you know, he'd, he'd take a little much easier rest. So he was being clever. You know, when he moved up to 168, and then he had an extra six, seven pounds to play with. And he was, he was a strong person for it. If you look at his early, if you look at his early amateur fights in, in the stadium, he wasn't a boxer. He was actually a brawler. He'd go watch it and he'd brawl with you. Um, when he went to America and signed with the Petronellis, he became more of a boxer. And, you know, if, if you look at all his fights prior, I think one of his best performances to date, if you can get it, is a guy called Tony Thornton, the punchman, the punch and postman. And Steve at the time was a USBA middleweight champ. Um, and, and, and in them days, when you were a USBA middleweight champ, you were top 10 ranking. But the defender title at the fight also some of the top 10 ranking. It wasn't a case of find someone with a winner record and you could defend against them and, and the, and, and the sanction bodies would allow it. At that time, you know, he was number seven in the USA rankings and he had the fight to number four, which a guy called Tony Tom. Um, Tony Tom was a puncher. He was shaved head, uh, similar to Marvin Hagler, similar style. Um, so literally in that fight, I think Steve received about 50 stitches. He had 22, 28 in his ear. He got split in his ear and both eyes. He got, you know, badly marked up with this guy's head, but his boxing performance on the night was unbelievable. He, he actually boxed like a, you know, well, I say should have been out, but something to that kind of style rather than Marvin Hagler. So in my eyes, that was Steve's best performance. So, you know, he, he, could, he could box and he learned how to box by going to the States. It was all a case, case of coaching a guy right and he learned how to box. But, uh, you know, then when he moved up to the 168, Limit, you know, Steve could have fought 175 too because he was big enough man. And I think at the time when the uh, Roy Jones fight wasn't going to happen, from that was the only fight that motivated him. 
when that fight was going to happen, I think it was, a, it was a talk moving with Dubai. I think it was uh, Makachelsky. Was it Makachelsky? Was that his name? The 175 WBO champion. He was German. Yeah, yeah. That's Darius Makachelsky, I think was his name. So there was time, there was actually talking to Steve moving up to 175 to fight this guy. You know, so it was, it was a big super way too, Steve was. And at the time, 1994, Steve wins the, the WBO World Middleweight title. The WEC champion, Gerald McClellan, um, I think he vacates around then as well, but he, he's in the mix. John David Jackson has the WBA and IBF is Roy Jones Jr. Barry Hearn yes. says afterwards, though, that the, he goes, they're not money fights. He goes, the one we want is the winner of Duran versus Vinny Pazienza. Like these would have been yes. just unreal nights. Yeah, well... We knew Vinnie Pazienzas, you know, from, as I say, he was in Hartford, Connecticut. It was only an hour away. And he was a regular at the Petronelli's gym. And he had fought in Massachusetts a number of times. Vinnie had. And the Pasmanian devil, he was exciting. He was a big name, former world champion, Sugar Ray Leonard. Like, you know, when you become a world champion, you become a world champion. And no matter what, it's like when, I always remember Mick Roots won the, the Olympic medal the gold medal in, in the Olympics. No matter what happens in his life, he was an Olympic champion. So my brother Steve was now world middleweight champion. So the next thing you want to do is make as much money as you can because he'd been, he'd been doing this for eight years. Eight years of his life, he's been sacrificing and he had been making no money. So all of a sudden, eight years later, he's a world champion. Now it's time to make money. And, and promoters, you know, you know, Eddie Hearn is not the great promoter he is today. Because he, he licked it off the street. He came from his dad. His dad was a great promoter. He was a great promoter. And he knew that these were the money fights. And Steve, I think Steve at the time done a, an interview and called out the Sugar Man, I think, on the same night, maybe. Sugar Man. Uh, Pazzy and the fight, I don't think would have happened because really knew Steve. And he was, a, I think, I, well, maybe it was the money was right, but I think Sugar Man now was the fight that could have happened and should have happened. Well, look, you had to console yourselves with uh, Steve Collins fighting Chris Eubank uh, twice the following year. So he did manage to, he did manage to lure big names into the, uh, into the ring. We will deal with that fight and others on future episodes of Rocky Road Rewind. Until then, Pascal Collins, thanks so much for joining us today. It's been absolutely brilliant. I've always had an interest in learning a bit more about this fight, so you've educated me today. Thank you. Well, that's good. Thank you. And listen, stay safe and hopefully see you all soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.